john humphrey noyes and his bible communists the environment by b b warfield this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org 1 the environment few things are more noticeable among the advocates of perfectionism from the opening of the second third of the nineteenth century than their extreme reluctance to accept the name of perfectionists many things may no doubt have cooperated to produce this attitude its main occasion lay however in the association of the name with a particular body of perfectionists then claiming the attention of the public with which other perfectionists were very loath to be confused how anxious they were not to be confused with this body may be measured by the vigour of the language in which themselves perfectionists they repudiate all connection with perfectionists asa mahan for example writing at the beginning of this period intemperately declares that the doctrine he teaches has absolutely nothing in common with perfectionism but a few terms drawn from the bible in order to distinguish his doctrine from perfectionism however he requires to describe the rejected doctrine as perfectionism technically so called a mode of speech which already suggests that perfectionism plainly understood is as it really is common ground between the two possibly to atone for this necessary confession of general kinship he sweepingly declares that perfectionism technically so called is in his judgment in the nature and necessary tendencies of its principles worse than the worst form of infidelity to william e broadman writing twenty years later the danger of confusion with this perfectionism seems less imminent and he is therefore able to speak of it with less passion he is not the less determined however to separate himself decisively from it this it must be confessed he does not accomplish in every respect without some apparent difficulty describing its fundamental mystical doctrine of the indwelling christ in terms which would not serve badly to describe the doctrine to which he himself ultimately came it is in point of fact not the perfectionism of the rejected perfectionism which offends him any more than mahan but its antinomianism and his real concern is to protest that not all perfectionism not his own variety for example is chargeable with the antinomianism which men had been led to associate with the name through experience with the body of religionists who had arrogated to themselves and had had accorded to them by common usage the specific name of perfectionists how firmly this special body of perfectionists had attached the general descriptive name of perfectionists to themselves as their particular designation just as other bodies of religionists have laid claim to the names of christians disciples and the like as their specific names is illustrated by the survival of this special use of the term and that in an even narrower application alongside its more general employment in the definition of the word perfectionist not usually of perfectionism in our current english dictionaries as well as in our religious encyclopedias a very good example is supplied by john henry blunt's dictionary of sects heresies ecclesiastical parties and schools of religious thought eighteen seventy four under the head of perfectionists he describes only a licentious american sect of antinomian communists all other perfectionists he classes under the head of perfectibilists a distinction in designation to which he does not succeed in giving currency this particular sect to which thus the name of perfectionists is reserved by blunt 
is no more perfectionist than other perfectionist parties nor did it arise under influences specifically different from those to which the perfectionist parties which have most sharply repudiated relationship with it owed their own origin nor can it be represented as without some common interests with them it differs from them however not merely in drawing off to itself and forming a separate sect instead of contenting itself with acting as leaven within existing churches but also in the particular doctrinal system which it developed for itself and which it utilized for the support and exposition not only of its perfectionism but also of certain radical social theories which having the courage of its convictions it presently put into practice up to a very bitter end in this perfectionist sect we have therefore the opportunity to observe a perfectionism working itself out in life under leadership strong enough to enable it to go its own way along the lines of a development distinctly logical although narrow and inconsiderate untrammelled by considerations derived from tradition whether religious ethical or social and unaffected by the universal judgment of the community in which it lived a great deal of ability was expended in the elaboration of its underlying religious and social theory an incredible audacity was shown in putting this theory into practice and a certain amount of temporary success attended the enterprise but the thinking embodied in it was as grotesque as it was acute it was astuteness rather than wisdom which presided over its social organization and the experiment had fairly reached the end of its possibilities of persistence in about a third of a century there is much to be learned from a study of it there is nothing about it which can fairly be represented as edifying the perfectionists or bible communists as they otherwise called themselves are only one of the many unwholesome products of the general religious excitement which swept over western and central new york in the late twenties and early thirties of the last century finding its way in the early thirties also into new england and thence over the world albert barnes defines a revival for us as the simultaneous conversion of many to christ adding in order to give completeness to the description and a rapid advance in promoting the purity and zeal of christians if this were a complete description of the phenomena which may display themselves in revivals they would always be such unmixed blessings that they could scarcely be connected with an earthly origin and they certainly could leave behind them nothing but good effects in point of fact however human elements are always mixed with them and these human elements may on occasion be so predominant that any divine ingredient which may be hidden in them may be negligible accordingly albert barnes proceeds at once to speak of them as actually experienced as also periods of religious excitement and to liken this excitement in its nature and effects to the excitement which tears men in a political campaign or sweeps them off their feet on the approach of war here is something quite out of the focus of his former description for excitement even though religious has no necessary relation whether as cause accompaniment or effect with the converting or reviving operations of the spirit of god a revival or religious excitement archibald alexander tells us may exist and be very powerful and affect many minds when the producing cause is not the spirit of god and when the truth of god is not the means of the awakening religious excitements he accordingly adds have been common among pagans mohammedans heretics have been common among pagans mohammedans heretics and papists w b sprague similarly warns us in the opening pages of his classical lectures on revivals in religion not to mistake a gust of animal passion for the awakening or converting operations of god's holy spirit 
great excitement may no doubt attend a true revival but it is not part and parcel of it and it may be very great and yet there be no true revival at all it may be an excitement produced not by the power of divine truth but by artificial stimulus applied to the imaginations and passions for the very purpose of producing commotion both within and without let us remember that god declares himself the god of order and that disorder can therefore never be the authentic mark of his working if god is working where disorder is it is in spite of the disorder not because of it the disorder is itself only the cause of evil a great work of the spirit says archibald alexander may be mingled with much enthusiasm and disorder but its beauty will be marred and its progress retarded by every such spurious mixture all means and measures which produce a high degree of excitement or a great commotion of the passions he therefore advises should be avoided because religion does not consist in these violent emotions nor is it promoted by them and when they subside a wretched state of deadness is sure to succeed fanaticism however much it may assume the garb and language of piety is its opposite the church he accordingly continues is not always benefited by what we call revivals but sometimes the effects of such commotions are followed by a desolation which resembles the work of a tornado i have never seen so great insensibility in any persons as in those who had been subjects of violent religious excitement and i have never seen any sinners so bold and reckless in their impiety as those who had once been loud professors and foremost in the time of revival it is with these evils in mind that in face of the possibility that a sinner here and there may nevertheless chance to be really converted through the action of this excitement joel hawes of hartford declares that a sinner may be converted at too great an expense no more awful arraignment of the religious excitement which sometimes accompanies and sometimes serves as a substitute for revivals could be phrased in point of fact such excitement has no christian character whatever its affinities are as archibald alexander has already reminded us with the universal religious phenomenon which elizabeth robbins sums up under the name of menadism a term which she defines broadly enough to make it include all intoxicating will-destroying excesses of religious fervour in which the multitude have a part when we remember the exercises which have often attended revivals and the moral delinquencies which have sometimes stained them we shall be compelled with bowed heads to recognize that they too may be so perverted as to be included in her observation it is a remarkable fact of the history of religion that men of widely differing creeds and countries have agreed in attaching a spiritual value to hysteria chorea catalepsy on the one hand and to a frenzy of cruelty and sensuality on the other diseased nerves and morals have often been ranked as the highest expression of man's faith and devotion the intrusion of this debasing excitement into revival movements with the effect sometimes of destroying them altogether sometimes of only greatly curtailing and marring their beneficent results is ordinarily traceable to one or the other of two inciting causes one of these is found in the character of the population among whom the revival is propagated the other in the character of its promoters and the methods they employ in promoting it methods better adapted to lash the nerves into uncontrollable agitation than to bring the sinner to intelligent trust in his saviour both of these causes were present and operative in the great revival movement which swept over western and central new york in the late twenties and early thirties of the last century 
it has been thought that the character of the population of this region derived from that of its first settlers laid them particularly open to fanaticism the earliest stratum of settlers entering the palmyra country from vermont on the second decade of the nineteenth century was we are told of rather unsavoury fame and although this stratum was overlaid in the next decade by a virile intelligent industrious class of settlers from eastern new york and new england the earlier settlers remained and by mixture with the newer comers gave a psychological character and a psychological history of its own to this region it has been therefore it is said on the one hand a centre of sane and progressive social movements but on the other hand a veritable hotbed of fanaticism and the two tendencies have entered into every possible combination with one another some of them startling enough it seems hardly just however to ascribe the whole of the evil to the earlier and the whole of the good to the later immigration there were many men of the highest character among the earlier immigrants and the newcomers themselves brought with them that tendency to eccentricity of opinion and extremity of temper which seems to be in the new england blood and which has made new england along with its intellectual and moral leadership of the nation also unhappily the fertile seed-plots of fads and extravagances central and western new york was in effect only an extended and because of its isolation and the hardness of its pioneer life in these respects an intensified new england the period moreover was one of universal excitability the great improvement in the mechanic arts and the wide diffusion of knowledge says albert b dodd writing in eighteen thirty five have given a strong impulse to the popular mind and everywhere the social masses seem to be in such a state of agitation that the lightest breath may make it heave and foam men stood in a condition of permanent astonishment everything seemed possible they did not know what would come next and thought it might be anything they lived on perpetual tiptoe it would have been strange if a raw population like that of central and western new york had retained its balance in such a time that it did not may be observed from the long list of fanaticisms into which it fell some of which are alluded to by the writer on whom we were drawing at the opening of this paragraph and the waves of most of which it sent washing back into the parent new england the earliest agitation which helped to reveal the unfortunate strain in the blood he writes was the crusade against the masonic fraternity in eighteen twenty six originating in a widespread belief unconfirmed by sound evidence that one morgan had been foully dealt with at the behest of the order whose secrets he was accused of revealing a single and mighty wave of indignation nearly obliterated the fraternity from that part of the united states in the early forties the rochester country was one of the two chief centres of the propaganda and excitement associated with the predictions of the vermont farmer william miller with respect to the approaching judgment and the destruction of the world in western new york it became a thoroughly irrational epidemic men and women forsook their employments and gave themselves over to watchings and prayer they hardly slept or ate but in robes of white awaited the coming of the bridegroom the result of very many cases was either physical or mental exhaustion ending in the horrors of insanity in the late forties the delusion of spiritualism entered upon its epidemic course with the rochester wrappings of the fox sisters it spread by imitation to new england and thence to europe and many of the phenomena attending it the trance the vision the convulsive movement the involuntary dancing 
the many indications of mental and nervous irritability had close affinity to the extraordinary revival effects which we have elsewhere observed i wish to remark again one strange and base spiritual product of this unique population of course it is generally known that mormonism had its beginning in this region but it is not so generally understood i think that mormonism was literally born and bred in the unhealthy revival atmosphere which has just been described in fact the sect of so-called latter-day saints might never have existed except for the extraordinary mental agitation about religious matters which pervaded western new york in this period mormonism has two main roots the one to be traced into the mental and nervous characteristics of the personality of joseph smith jr the other into the revival environment in which he lived and moved and neither is a sufficient explanation without the other a population like this could be trusted to produce spontaneously all the evil fruits of spurious religious excitement in point of fact it did so the writer upon whom we have been drawing speaking of the period preceding that to which we wish to direct particular attention points out that during it an unbridled revival activity characterized the ordinary religious life of western new york before finney's personality issued upon the scene he says before any particular individual assumed the leadership this fanatical restlessness this tendency to spiritual commotion was in the mind of the population and periodically broke forth in fantastic and exciting revivals there were whole stretches of country in those parts that for generations were known as the burnt district and which finney found so blistered and withered by constant revival flame that no sprout no blade of spiritual life could be caused to grow only the apples of sodom flourished in the form of ignorance intolerance or boasted sinlessness and a tendency to freedom and spiritual affinities but this fanaticism-loving populace was not left to the spontaneous manifestation of its tendency to religious excitement it was sedulously incited to it by its religious leaders and naturally its last state was no better than the first if any one wishes to enjoy the illusion of actual assisting at an average revival meeting of this period he has only to read mrs trollope's painfully realistic descriptions alike of a town revival and of a camp meeting albert barnes warns us to be sure against trusting the testimony of the trollops and the fiddlers and the martineus persons he says having as few qualifications for being correct reporters of revivals of religion as could be found in the wide world it would be absurd of course to resort to mrs trollop for the religious interpretation of revival phenomena but the general trustworthiness of her report of revival occurrences actually witnessed by her is unimpeachable when allowance is once made for the one-sidedness of her observation due to her unsympathetic attitude she describes only what she saw she does not herself generalize on it but what she describes might be seen anywhere in the western country at the time sometimes no doubt in less often unfortunately in much more offensive forms of course we are not confined to the testimony of mrs trollope and the writers of her type to learn what revivals at this period were like we have for example a very sympathetic summary account of them from the pen of andrew reed one of two very competent observers sent in the early thirties by the congregational union of england and wales to visit the american churches reed does not doubt that the revivals were in themselves a work of god the results of which by and large were for his glory 
but neither is he able to close his eyes to the evils which accompany them especially the opportunity afforded by them and eagerly availed of for vain weak and fanatical men to exploit for their own ends the emotional excitement which was aroused that there were serious evils intrinsic in the very manner in which the revivals were conducted he is compelled to recognize but that he says was not after all the worst of it they seem to have the faculty of generating a spirit worse than themselves rash measures attract rash men he explains and their onward and devious path is tracked by the most unsanctified violence and reckless extravagance they are liable to run out into wild fanaticism he explains further a revival is a crisis it implies that a great mass of human passion that was dormant is suddenly called into action those who are not moved to god will be moved to the greater evil the hay wood and stubble which are always to be found even within the pale of the church will enkindle and flash and flare it is an occasion favourable to display and the vain presumptuousness will endeavour to seize on it and turn it to their own account whether such a state of general excitement is connected with worldly or religious objects it is too much and would argue great ignorance of human nature to expect that it should not be liable to excess and disorder these somewhat general reflections are brought nearer to the point of most interest to us by the testimony of james h hodgkin the historian of western new york and a most cautious and sober-minded man speaking directly out of his own experience he too of course is sympathetic to the revival movement in itself but he feels constrained to note explicitly that circumstances have occurred in connection with these revivals which give the most painful exhibition of the wickedness and folly of man when leaving the divine word he imagines himself wiser than god he is led by his experience to the generalization that whenever the religious excitement has been strong a spirit of fanaticism has been induced and has greatly hindered the good work and marred its beauty he has observed further that these evils have been particularly apparent when the revival work was carried on not by the settled ministry but by outsiders called in because of some fancied particular adaptation to this work no doubt there were among these revival men or revival preachers men of true piety whose usefulness was demonstrated by the results of their labours of others however hodgkin declares himself constrained to believe that if they were not impostors they must have been self-deceived fanatics and certainly he declares their operations and influences were destructive in a high degree and brought discredit on the revival one and another of these men are mentioned and described and it is pointed out that while mighty men in stirring up excitement they failed under the test of time in bringing men really to christ thus they proved themselves to be mere religious demagogues for does not gustave le bon tell us that when describing demagogues and their ways that it is easy to imbue the mind of a crowd with a passing opinion but very difficult to implant therein a lasting belief it is not however until we turn to the portion of his book in which hodgkin records the life histories of the individual churches that we realize the amount either of the excitement stirred up by these men or of the evil wrought by it yet as he is speaking only of the presbyterian churches which suffered least of all the churches from this disease we are looking through his eyes only at the outer fringes of the evil even in the presbyterian churches it certainly was bad enough one augustus littlejohn seems to have been the evil genius of the presbytery of angelica 
one Luther Myrick of the Presbytery of Onondaga, one James Boyle of the Presbytery of Geneva. These were all famous revivalists, enjoying high favor not only in western New York, but to the east as well, and running through great careers, and only when they had wrought their ruin did they fall at last under the ban of the church they had distracted and whose people they had harassed and misled it is appalling to observe the number of churches of which it is recorded that they were disturbed injured or destroyed by the activities of these men and their coadjutors we need not repeat these records here let that of manlius centre church serve as a single example it was we read torn to pieces and became extinct through the influences of mr myrick and other errorists we prefer to transcribe merely the long record of the experiences of the church of conhockton as particularly instructive of the state of mind induced by the prevalent religious excitement in the summer of eighteen thirty two we read rev james boyle held with this church a protracted meeting which was continued through a number of days the measures which were common with him and others of that class of evangelists were employed and a state of high excitement was produced and many professed to be converted and no doubt some souls really were born again a large number were received into the church swelling its numbers to one hundred and ten members it might seem that the days of the mourning of this church were now ended and that she must now have acquired such a measure of strength as to be able in all future time to enjoy the stated ministrations of the gospel but such was not the case very little pecuniary strength was acquired a spirit of fanaticism was infused into the minds of many and a state of preparation to be carried away with any delusion was induced with respect to the converts so called the writer is unable to say what has become of them he believes very few of them give satisfactory evidence of having been born again in the winter of eighteen thirty seven to thirty eight a very singular state of things existed mrs conn who had been a member of the church a number of years and highly esteemed by some at least as a woman of piety and activity in promoting the cause of christ began to take a very conspicuous part in the meetings for social and religious worship she professed to have special communications from god and to know the secrets of the hearts of those with whom she was conversant she assumed an authoritative position in the church and gave out her directions as from god himself denouncing as hypocrites in the church all who did not submit to her mandates she predicted the speedy death in the most awful manner of particular individuals who opposed her authority and manifested a most implacable rancour against all who did not acknowledge her inspiration in her proceedings she was assisted by a young man who for his misconduct has been excommunicated from the church of prattsburg a number of the members of the church of conhockton were carried away with this delusion and acknowledged mrs conn as one under the inspiration of the almighty so completely were they infatuated that they seemed to suppose that their eternal salvation depended on the will of mrs conn they were ready to obey all her commands and to assert as truth anything which she should order some of them became permanently deranged and one or two families were nearly broken up nor was this delusion confined wholly to the church of conhockton mrs conn and her coadjutor went into the country of wyoming and some in that region were brought under the delusion and received her as a messenger sent from god whether to view mrs conn as an impostor a wild fanatic or a deranged person the writer will not assume the responsibility of determining many circumstances would favour the idea of imposture the writer is informed that she has become a maniac 
this circumstance may favour the idea of mental aberration but the consequences to the church were most disastrous one of the most distressing accompaniments of revival excitements has been a tendency which has often showed itself in connection with them to sexual irregularities this tendency does not seem to find its accounts solely at least in the low level of culture of the populations which have furnished the materials on which these revivals chiefly worked and it certainly is not to be confounded with the opportunity taken by evil-minded persons from the conditions created by the revivals for corrupt practices the opportunity has been afforded and improved the camp meetings of course supplying the most flagrant instances r davidson describing the great kentucky revival at the opening of the century feels bound to consecrate a section to the too free communication of the sexes and although he excuses himself from giving details on account of the delicacy of the subject he tells us plainly that dissolute characters of both sexes frequented the camps to take advantage of the opportunities afforded by the prevailing license and disorder this however was only incidental to the revivals themselves what needs to be recognized is that the nervous exaltation which was the direct product of the revival methods too frequently employed seems not merely to have broken down the restraints to the unchecked discharge of other than religious emotions but to have opened the channels for their discharge and even to have incited to it so that as w hepworth dixon puts it in vivid phrase the passions seemed to be all unloosed and to go astray without let or guide it was the participators in the revival excitement themselves who went astray john lyle reviewing the case of the women who had been the subjects of the falling exercise prior to november eighteen o two found several by the most unequivocal proofs to have since fallen still more woefully no fewer than four individuals having transgressed in the most flagrant manner occasion has of course been taken from such facts to confuse emotions which differ toto coelo there is actually a theory extant that the religious emotion is nothing but the sexual ecstasy misinterpreted and it is quite common to represent the human love passion and the spiritual love passion as lying in particularly close contiguity if not even as delicately interwoven there is no justification for such representations they rest on an incredible confusion of the movements of the human soul set in the midst between two environments and accessible to influences alike from below and above not even all love of man is sex love no love of man is religious love religious love is not the entirety of the religious emotion we are in the presence here of nothing more mysterious than the obvious fact that man's emotional nature is a unit and violent emotional discharges may readily be deflected from one to another direction the phenomenon we are witnessing is only the familiar one of the peril of abandoning control of ourselves when once we drop the reins and give unbridled play to our passional movements there is no telling what the end may be we cannot act the menad in religion and expect our menadism to manifest itself nowhere else if religion becomes synonymous to us with excess all excess is very apt to come to seem to us religious it is in this sense only that it is true when barring gould declares that spiritual exaltation runs naturally inevitably into licentiousness unless held in the iron bands of discipline to the moral law davenport's wider generalization is true whenever reason is subordinated and feeling is supreme 
the influence is always in the direction of the sweeping away of inhibitive control it is moreover not merely into licentiousness that religious menadism tends to run but into all forms of lawless action j h noyes shows an insight unwanted to him therefore when he represents revivals of course as known to him that is to say the revivals of religious excitement as intrinsically subversive of the whole social as well as moral order defining them from the true menadistic point of view and even in language strongly reminiscent of heathen modes of speech he declares that a revival is the actual intrusion of the power of god into human affairs that is to say says he it is the entrance into the complex of active causes of the actual deity this entrance of the actual deity into human life is conceived after the fashion of the intrusion of a universal natural force only more powerful than other natural forces conservatives fancy that its operations are restricted to the conversion of souls that says noise is absurd you cannot cabin and crib such a force in that way once set in motion it goes or tends to go into all the affairs of life a revolution is really inaugurated in every revival and if it does not overturn and reconstitute all the life of the world that is only because its action is prematurely checked revival preachers and revival converts are necessarily in the incipient stage of a theocratic revolution they have in their experience the beginning of the life under the higher law and if they stop at internal religious changes it is because the influence that converted them is suppressed the term higher law here is ominous the first effect of revivals is conceived as emancipation from the laws which now govern life and if red integration follows it must be under a higher law than they they do and always must leave social disintegration in their train the prominence particularly of sexual irregularities in the train of the revivals of religious excitement is probably in large part due therefore only to the large opportunities and immediate temptations to irregularities of this particular order offered by revival intimacies the period in which the revivals of the late twenties and early thirties took place was moreover one of widespread unrest with respect to the relation of the sexes and of relaxation of the strictness of traditional habits and the communistic experiments incited in the middle years of the twenties by robert owen no doubt also brought their contribution to the result with respect to these particular revivals however we must not underestimate the influence of the fantastic apocalyptical theories by which a large part of their unhealthy excitement was produced and which by persuading men that they no longer lived on the earthly plane or under earthly law gave to sexual irregularities a religious sanction or even made them appear a religious duty being menads men and women committed adultery for the kingdom of god's sake as the victims of the atrocious cochrane were doing in maine and new hampshire a short decade before and the associates of the unspeakable matthias himself a product of these revivals were doing contemporaneously in new york and sing sing thus arose the shocking theory of spiritual wives which was intimately connected with the perfectionism that constituted after all said the most unwholesome product of the revival excitement there is no reason to suppose that the spiritual wives at the outset were anything other than the name strictly taken imports intimate spiritual companions and fellow-workers in a common task 
the hot perfectionist living in the new order attached to himself a like-minded female companion who shared his labours at home and abroad they lived together travelled together worked together in a fellowship closer than and superseding that of husband and wife it was a renewal of the spiritual wives the agapetue or virgines subintroductoe of the early church but it required only a few months to run through the development that its earlier model consumed some centuries in traversing for it was in the first instance only an incredible folly and dangerous fanaticism soon became an intolerable scandal and dissolute practice spiritual wives became carnal mistresses here and there injured husbands avenged their wrongs by physical assaults upon the clerical offenders and when the husband was complacent the outraged community was apt to treat both legal and spiritual husband to a coat of tar and feathers and a ride on a rail though actually only sporadically practised the advocacy of this indecency was widespread in perfectionist circles its roots were planted in the prevalent notion that the saints had advanced beyond the legalities of the worldly order and that it behooved them to be putting the freedom of the resurrection life into practice the perfectionism of which this deplorable practice was one of the fruits was pervasive and everywhere it went it worked destruction it was intensely individualistic in its temper and operated accordingly as a disintegrating force in the church organizations into which it found entrance this effect was increased by its affiliation with a powerful unionistic movement which was vexing the churches of this region like other unionistic movements this one also was much more effective for tearing down the existing organizations which stood in its way than for realizing its own professed utopian ends at all events ruin marked the pathway along which the combined perfectionist unionist forces moved here is a typical notice reverend a hale from the black river association distracted the church with perfectionism and reverend luther myrick with unionism twenty male members broke away from the church at one time as perfectionists there was an active organization vigorously at work among the churches calling itself the central evangelical association of new york which consisted as hodgkin tells us just of a body of perfectionists and unionists the synod of geneva at its meeting in october eighteen thirty five warned the ministers and churches under its charge against it because as it said it does not sustain the reputation of an orthodox body and the course of proceedings adopted by most of its ministers is calculated to divide corrupt and distract the churches the synod therefore declared that it deemed it irregular for any minister or church in our connection to admit the ministers of the said association to their pulpits or in any way to recognize them or the churches organized by them as in regular standing such a deliverance was necessarily a mere brutum fulmen even had it taken a more authoritative form it was locking the door after the horse had been stolen nor is it easy in any event to see how the closing of presbyterian pulpits to perfectionist agitators could have been expected to protect the people from the flames of wild religious excitement flaring up hotly in churches of other connections half a block away the communities were small and the people therefore in close contact and intimate intercourse with one another the religious excitement that was raging was the property of no one denomination but pervaded all it was the professed object of one of the most active organizations engaged in fostering it and the actual effect of many with no official connection with that organization to obliterate all dividing lines and to reduce the whole christian body to an indiscriminate mass of fanaticism
Certainly perfectionists swarmed over the land, drawing from all churches, forming none. No doubt the ever-present fact of Wesleyan perfectionism lay in the background and supplied everywhere a starting point and everywhere gave a certain dignity and stability to the movement. A number of the perfectionist leaders were of Methodist origin, but the most effective forces in the production of the prevalent perfectionism were derived from quite different quarters, particularly from the Pelagianizing theories of the will emanating from New Haven. The perfectionism actually developed, ran, however, in point of fact, into mystical moulds. These perfectionists, as a contemporary writer very fairly puts it, believe that they have the inward Christ, can do no wrong, that to the pure all things are pure, that Christ is responsible for all they do, and other such blasphemous absurdities. Their chief, or at least their most obvious characteristic, accordingly, was less correctness in conduct than freedom in the spirit, and this, in fact, constituted their main attraction to the populace. J. H. Noyce fully recognizes that some doubtless joined the standard of perfectionism not because they loved holiness, but because they were weary of the restraints of the duty-doing churches. Perfectionism presented them a fine opportunity of giving full swing to carnality, and at the same time of glorying over the servants under law. Nothing was further from their intention, of course, than to submit themselves to the restraints of organization. Each wished to be a law to himself, and as far as he could compass it, a law also to everybody else. They erected what Noyce calls disunity into a principle, and denounced organization as in itself an evil, a slavery to which free men in the spirit would not submit. To perfectionists generally, writes William A. Hines, the idea of discipline, organization, submission one to another was intolerable. Were they children of the covenant that gendereth to bondage, they asked themselves, or were they called to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ had made them free? Were they not living in the very last days foretold by the prophets when all were to know the Lord from the least unto the greatest, and when no one should teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord? Perfectionists, said the eloquent James Boyle, stand as independent of each other as they do of any anti-christian churches they will not be taught by each other as they are all taught of god nor will they acknowledge any man as a leader or chief or anything of the kind such extreme individualism as is here announced cannot really maintain itself in practice the perfectionists too of course found leaders and showed sufficient coherence to hold conventions at which a common platform was proclaimed and joint undertakings inaugurated even centres of activity were formed from which perfectionist influences radiated after a fashion which suggests at least the beginnings of institutional organization one of the earliest of them was established at the little cotton mill village of manlius where the little presbyterian church manlius centre was stamped out Hiram Sheldon was recognized by the Manlius perfectionists as their leader and expositor, but there were associated with him such men as Jarvis Ryder, Martin P. Sweet, and Erasmus Stone. In this coterie originated most of the extravagances which characterized the perfectionist movement. At Manlius, says Dixon, the chosen took upon themselves the name of saints. Here they announced their separation from the world. Here they began to debate whether the old marriage vows would or would not be binding in the new heaven and the new earth. It was Albany, however, which became the real distributing centre of the movement, at least for the East, and the house of the Mrs. Annesley there became the centre of the centre. Thence missionaries proceeded into New England, and groups of perfectionists were established here and there, at Southampton, 
Brimfield, New Haven. At Albany, of course, the same ruin was wrought as elsewhere. The churches were greatly troubled. The Fourth Presbyterian Church, E. N. Kirk's, was required to put into action extensive disciplinary proceedings, and even the classroom of the little theological seminary which E. N. Kirk had established was invaded by the fanaticism. We hear of its being carried from this centre as far as the extreme western border of frontier Wisconsin. End of John Humphrey Noyes and His Bible Communists, The Environment, by B. B. Warfield.